you're a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and program director for diabetes and obesity at the Sabban Research Institute. Mike is affiliated with the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, where he holds the Robert C. and Veronica Atkins Endowed Chair in Childhood Obesity and Diabetes. Uh, Michael Gorin also serves as a co-director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute, a leading researcher in metabolism as it relates to obesity and diabetes in the world, and recipient of many scientific awards and prizes. Uh, you're the editor of the book, Childhood Obesity, Causes, Consequences, and Intervention Approaches, co-editor of Dietary Sugars and Health, you serve as editor-in-chief of the journal Pediatric Obesity, but Above all, for today's presentation, you are with Emily Ventura. Uh, you've written a more popular book with Penguin Paperbacks called Sugarproof, which is a fantastic book, which is not just something that is sort of academically useful and interesting, scientifically interesting, but also offers practical advice. So, Michael, um, it's great to have you back talking at UBBO. So, so over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Stanley. Thank you so much for that introduction. And nice to be here. I think it was over 10 years ago when I was in Oxford. Actually, I've been back since then, I think, but it was 10 years ago when I first met you approximately when during my sabbatical. It's great to stay connected. Going to talk about how sugar affects growing bodies, children, infants, and really sugar has such broad effects on children. And I don't have time to talk about all of them, but just showing you here different organ systems that are affected in children by sugar going from the brain down to the extremities and all of the major organs are affected by excess sugars. And as I'll talk about, what concerned me the most was how children seem to be more vulnerable to these adverse effects. And then of course, with the pandemic and COVID, there's also a connection too with sugar. Sugar, high sugary foods and high processed diets uh, contribute to blunting the immune system and compromised immune system and high blood glucose from those diets increases susceptibility to infections and severity of complications. Okay, so how do we get into this sugary storm mess? I'd like to talk about three different aspects that have uh, occurred. And the combination of these three factors creates this interaction that is causing this big problem. So first of all, we have this high sugar food environment. Kids today are consuming not just more sugar uh, than previous generations, but different types of sugar and more sugar in liquid form. And by that, I mean beverages uh, that are high in sugar. So there's been this generational shift from milk is the main milk and water is the main beverage source to sodas, juice drinks, energy drinks, and so on. And as I'll talk about, it's those liquid forms of highly concentrated, high volume sugars that become problematic. Uh, second is that babies are born with a built-in preference for sweetness. This was supposed to be protective from an evolutionary perspective, but it's really backfiring in today's high sugar food environment. So this preference for sweetness was really supposed to help babies like breast milk, which is sweet, to help them seek out good calories and to avoid food that had spoiled. But clearly it's backfiring in today's food environment. And then the third aspect is this physiological vulnerability. Why is it that 
kids and babies are more uh, susceptible, more vulnerable to the adverse effects of excess sugar. And I'll give you a couple of examples. And one most obvious example that I like to give is tooth decay, which uh, is one of the most obvious uh, outwardly signs of uh, disease in, in, in children. It's highly prevalent. Why is it mostly affecting children? And it's because, because children who are consuming sugars consume food more frequently during the day, generally, plus sugars in the mouth promote the growth of bacteria in the mouth that produce acid and developing teeth do not yet have the enamel to protect them from that acid. So it's a clear cut example of how the developing tooth is vulnerable to the adverse effects from of excess sugar consumption because of that acid destroying the teeth. So then the combination of those three factors really uh, contributes to a slow and gradual development of a wide range of issues, chronic diseases, type two diabetes, fatty liver disease, even cardiovascular disease may not be evident as such in children, but for sure the signs are there, the preclinical risk factors are starting to increase and can be traced back to adverse effects of sugars. And even beyond chronic diseases, there are effects on uh, health, learning, and well-being that I'll briefly mention. This graph here shows the generational shift, not just in the amount of sugar being consumed by the population. This is U.S. data. This is based on uh, food production data. So it's availability data going back to 1900, showing the shifts in the amount. So if you just look at regular sugar, which is sucrose, it's ordinary table sugar, you can see actually in 2020 in the U.S. consumption is about 10 teaspoons per day. That's where it was, that's where it was over 100 years ago. So that's actually pretty good. But the problem is we have all these other sugars that have been introduced into the food supply. Most obviously high fructose corn syrup and then sugars now by other sugars, meaning over 200 different names for sugar beyond sucrose. So you can see that in combination, we're now... Uh, in the U.S., at least uh, over three times higher per capita consumption than we were back here. And then if you look at the recommendation for adults, which is about 10% of daily calories, so based on the average adult, that works out to be about 10 to 12 uh, teaspoons uh, per day. And that's added sugars, by the way. So whereas this is total sugars, which would include sugars from fruit and sugars from dairy, in terms of total sugar. This is a recommendation for added sugars. As I mentioned, the food industry has gotten pretty clever at marketing, developing different names for sugar. This is just a fraction of the 200 different names that, that exist. And you can see some good examples here of healthy sounding things like organic brown rice syrup, uh, evaporated grape juice, and so on. These are just essentially different forms of sugar or concentrated sugar. And there's now over 200 names for sugar used by the food industry. And food industry likes to do that because it can use multiple uh, sugars in, in, in a, on the ingredient list and the ingredient list has to be organized by amount in there. So rather than listing sugar as the number one ingredient, they can list five, six, seven different sugars uh, further down the ingredient list to um, kind of hide those sugars on the ingredient list. Now, in terms of uh, children, and, and even uh, this data is also true for adults, 
So 70% of processed foods available in the US, I wouldn't imagine it's quite similar in the UK, uh, contain added sugar. And if you look at processed foods and snacks marketed to, towards children, it's about 80%. And for infants, 60% of infants and 98% of toddlers consume added sugar on any given day. And almost 40% of all products marketed towards uh, infants list sugar or some form of sugar as the first or even or a second ingredient. So what's very interesting also is that we have this high sugar food environment, but some good news, and it'd be interesting to see how things evolve over the next few years. Uh, in the US, at least the new dietary guidelines uh, recommend zero added sugars from zero to two years of age. That's, that's a brand new recommendation and something that we talk about in the book um, that we had in there <clears throat> based on not just our research, but other research that points to the adverse effects of sugar exposure very early in life. So it'll be interesting to see how the food companies respond to this new guideline. I won't talk about all of this, but this is just to show some of the chronic diseases that have been associated with increased sugars in adults, obesity, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, via liver disease and effects on brain development. And just to show one biochemical slide. I'm trained in biochemistry, so I have to give a little bit of biochemistry, but it's important to understand how different sugars are handled by the body uh, and understand why fructose and glucose, uh, which are chemically identical, are actually quite different. So sucrose is a disaccharide of fructose connected to glucose. Both are six carbon sugars. Both are chemically identical. Uh, both are four calories per gram, but they have a different shape. Fructose is a five carbon ring with one carbon off to the side and glucose is a six carbon ring. And this is a very good example of why a calorie is not always a calorie because they are handled in very different ways. As soon as you consume that sugar in the mouth and then in the stomach and the gut, the molecule breaks apart. Glucose gets absorbed in the gut through at least 11 or 12 different transporters and is processed in the blood, circulating to all the tissues of the body and used for energy. It's combusted to carbon dioxide and water. Now, fructose, on the other hand, very different. And by the way, that process is insulin dependent. Fructose is almost entirely taken up by the liver at first pass, meaning almost all of the fructose that gets absorbed by the gut and there's only one transporter to do that. So there is a lot of uh, potential for fructose malabsorption, which can cause other issues. But the fructose that is absorbed, 90% of it is filtered out of the system by the liver. And of course, the job of the liver is to filter things out of the blood that it doesn't want to get to the rest of the body, like alcohol and toxins. And you can include in that list now fructose. And what happens to the fructose molecule is almost exactly the same as what happens to the alcohol molecule, which in the liver is converted to fat in a mechanism, a pathway that produces uric acid and other pro-inflammatory molecules. And then fat can get stuck in the liver or it can be repackaged and exported out into the blood. This pathway leads to an increase in fatty liver, most of which up to 10 years ago was due to alcohol-induced liver disease. But now we have a thing called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, which is really due to sugars and fructose in particular, 
being uh, converted to fat in the liver. Fatty liver is now a very problematic uh, disease. It uh, worsens, at least to destruction of the liver, the requirement for a liver transplant and decline in liver function can have other effects around the body too. That pathway though is somewhat dose dependent. And this is a study from mice, uh, which explains why it's okay to eat an apple with a small amount of fructose versus consuming a beverage that has a high amount of concentrated fructose. So when you um, consume a low dose of fructose, such as you, what you would get from eating an apple, the fructose is in low amount, it's released very slowly. And it turns out that the gut under those conditions, at least in mice, we don't know if this is true in humans, but as we suspect it is, the gut can convert some of that fructose into glucose and that glucose can then be used uh, for energy throughout the body. Uh, whereas under conditions of high fructose, this pathway is overwhelmed, it's rate limiting, and you get either spillover of fructose excuse me, either malabsorption of the fructose, which causes um, dysbiosis and affects the gut microbiome, or the fructose that is absorbed gets absorbed, gets taken up by the liver. This issue is dose dependent and also um, time dependent. So it's based on the amount of fructose and the rate at which it hits the liver. This is a, this study was published actually some time ago, but I like to quote it because it's, um, looks at the question of whether increased sugary beverage consumption is uh, a risk factor for obesity. And it's been so highly studied that there was a systematic review of all of the systematic reviews. It was 18 systematic reviews. There's probably more of them by now. And the conclusion of the study uh, suggested uh, reporting bias, that the answer to the question depended on who funded the study. So six of those systematic reviews were conducted by uh, organizations with, with uh, connection to the food and beverage industry, and five of the six concluded no basis of evidence. 12 of the reviews had no financial conflicts, and 10 of those 12 reviews concluded that sugary beverage consumption could be a potential risk for obesity. And some of the evidence linking high sugars to adverse outcomes is actually stronger for diseases like cardiovascular disease. This is data from, from the Nurses Health Study and other cohort studies in the US and Boston, followed adult men and women for up to 15 years and looked at the outcome of dying uh, death from cardiovascular disease uh, as a function of quintile of added sugar intake. And so you can see here the risk going from uh, a risk of one, which is defined by the lowest quintile increases marginally at the low end and starts to increase much more at the upper end. So it's the upper end, the extreme end, in the highest quintile, there's a two-fold higher increase risk of death from heart disease. Uh, and and you know, we can trace this back to what I just showed you of how high sugars can contribute to dyslipidemia in the circulation, which is the first subclinical marker of cardiovascular disease. If you translate that same data into percent of calories from added sugar, uh, which we did also did in the paper, using less than 10% of calories from added sugar intake, which is the recommendation from the WHO and other organizations, which is about this amount of added sugar in one can of soda, just as a reference point. You can see there's a marginal increase if individuals were consuming 
10 to 25% of calories, which is about two, so, two cans of soda. But the big jump is in the high end, more than 25% of calories from added sugar being three cans of soda, where there's now also almost a threefold increase in risk. For type 2 diabetes, this is a meta-analysis uh, looking at the increased risk of type 2 diabetes relative to servings per day of sugar-sweetened beverages. And these studies listed here, this is the increase in risk in all of those studies. And the pooled estimate from all those studies was 1.26, meaning there's a 26% increased risk of getting type 2 diabetes per serving per day of sugar-sweetened beverages. In children, we published one of the first studies, and this was almost 10 years ago, so this is pretty old by now, but it was one of the first studies to show that this effect is manifested quite early in life. This is a children studied between two and four years of age, 1,500 children who were separated into three groups. It's a very straightforward uh, cross-sectional study. And after adjusting for potential confounders like maternal obesity and maternal socioeconomic status and so on. Children were separated into these three, three groups based on no consumption of sugary beverages, one serving per day or two serving per day, then just looking at the prevalence of obesity defined by a BMI above the 95th percentile being much higher in those children who were introduced early to sugary beverages. And other studies have shown that the earlier the introduction of sugary beverages, the bigger the impact. In terms of fatty liver disease in children, this is data from Ann Haynes, again, from 2013, uh, showing the prevalence of suspected fatty liver disease just based on an algorithm using liver enzyme markers and obesity, showing the increase uh, over the past 20 years uh, in boys and girls. And you can see that um, almost um, 40% of obese boys and 30% of obese girls in 2010, I suspect that number is higher by now, have um, suspected fatty liver disease. And the highest level is seen among Mexican-American males, and that's partially due to a genetic predisposition that's been observed in Latinos, uh, where there's a gene called PMPLA3 that almost 50% of Mexican-Americans and Latinos have that gene that confers a higher risk for fatty liver accumulation. This is a nice review just published uh, this month uh, in Pediatric Obesity, showing some of the key clinical markers, but it was striking data showing 62% increase in the incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children uh, between 2009 and 2018. And other studies have shown a direct link, direct almost cause and effect link to sugar. Uh, we can't overfeed kids sugar, but we can restrict sugar and see if liver fat goes down. And several studies have done that quite elegantly. Uh, this was one such study. It's a small study, 40 children, but it was a very carefully controlled study where all meals were provided to the children for nine days. And all they did here was just exchange sugar for starch. And so by switching out the sugar and replacing it with starch, you've isolated the effect of fructose because the fructose in the diet is almost zero. So with this diet, they were able to get the caloric, for, they were able to get the fructose down to just 4% of calories and everything else uh, was the same. And what they showed that even after just nine days, so quite short term, they got an improvement in liver fat 
from uh, 7% of the liver being fat down to 3.8. And by the way, the clinical definition of fatty liver disease is a liver fat of 5%. So that actually could be very clinically uh, significant. And they also showed that this was explained by a reduction in de novo lipogenesis, which is basically uh, that pathway of converting fat, converting sugar into fat in the liver, that's de novo lipogenesis. So they showed that that pathway was basically shut down when you took fructose out of the diet. Now, in terms of uh, effects on brain function during development, not a lot of studies in humans actually on this. This is one study we found from Australia uh, showing the negative impact of sugary beverage consumption on academic performance and learning ability. Large population of children separated into four groups based on low versus high consumption per day of sugary beverages. And they just looked at the uh, standardized test scores in four different um, areas. And what they showed that for each, there was a significantly lower test score for grammar, reading, writing, and numeracy in the group consuming uh, higher amounts of daily sugary beverages. Other studies like the Project Viva from Boston, which is a longitudinal cohort, started in pregnancy, looking at the impact of nutrition during pregnancy on childhood outcomes. They looked here again on test scores in children at either three or eight years of age as a function of maternal soda consumption or diet soda consumption and showed uh, effects for both. So both regular soda and diet soda were, were associated. At age three, it was only diet soda that had an impact on reduced learning ability. At age eight, there was an effect of both, striking effect of diet soda. So bigger effect, reduction of the score is not that big, but it's still uh, highly significant. And also for nonverbal learning ability too. Uh, I'd like to show this study. Uh, it's a study conducted by my colleague at uh, USC because it isolates the effect of critical windows. So this was a study in rats. Uh, that were studied either as an adult or during adolescence. And yes, rats have adolescence, which lasts only about 20 to 30 days. Uh, and they, what they did was they fed these rats um, a regular diet with an extra bottle of water, sucrose solution or high fructose corn syrup solution, and looked at spatial memory score, which basically is the ability of the rat to find its way out of a maze under stressful conditions. And what they showed was that in adults, there was no effect. Rats were unaffected. Their brains seemed to be working fine. But in adolescent rats, there was a significant reduction, especially with the high fructose corn syrup in the spatial memory performance. Uh, and what they later showed was that this was uh, um, basically an imprinted long lasting effect. Because in this study, they exposed the rats only during adolescence. So that's 30 days between day 26 and 56, they got the extra bottle of sugar water. They then took it away for four months and studied the adult rats and were able to basically reproduce this, the same effect of uh, re reduction in memory performance, showing that it was the exposure during the period of adolescence. And in the rat, adolescence is a period of rapid, rapid brain development. And they also showed that this was partially due to an effect of hippocampal inflammation induced by the sugars. And they were able to do that by slicing out different areas of the brain and looking at inflammatory uh, damage. So um, 
Now here in the second part of the talk, uh, I wanna just talk about some of the protective effects of, of sugars in breast milk and the role of these complex sugars in breast milk called, called oligosaccharides. And we got into this from this study. This is what I already showed you, that data from the two to four-year-old children. It's exactly what I already showed you. But this portion of the, of the study participants uh, were never breastfed or breastfed for less than 12 months. What I didn't show you was the data in children who had been breastfed for more than 12 months. Didn't have to be exclusive, but what was really interesting was that regardless of their uh, sugary beverage consumption, they actually had lower levels of obesity. And you can see actually the most striking effect is that even in the high sugary beverage consumers, uh, they were afforded quite a good degree of protection uh, with the lowest level of obesity by two to four years of age. So God is very interested in asking, what is it about long-term breastfeeding? We know there's a dose response effect. Long, the longer the uh, duration of breastfeeding, the greater the impact on learning and brain development and the greater the impact on obesity protection, but we don't know the mechanism. So we got interested in these sugars in breast milk uh, that are called oligosaccharides or complex sugars that are all built on the backbone of lactose, which is a disaccharide of galactose converted to glucose. So it's, it's, <clears throat> it's like sucrose, except there's no fructose. Fructose is replaced by galactose. So babies consuming only breast milk uh, don't generally have exposure to fructose, uh, although we have shown that there can be maternal transmission from the diet into the breast milk of some fructose. Uh, now, these oligosaccharides then build upon the backbone of this molecule uh, with adding on different residues like fucose, which is a, actually a sugar quite similar to fructose but it has other functions in the body. And this molecule here is the most abundant um, oligosaccharide. And it's been shown to play a role in fighting infection uh, in mice and in humans by uh, reducing, by, by promoting immunity in the gut. Uh, and then there's these other molecules and there's over a hundred of these. These are just some examples. This is one that has sialic acid tagged on and sialic acid is uh, important for brain development and uh, also helps promote in, uh, immunity as well. How do they work? They work because they're prebiotics. Not only do they play a role in infant immunity, but they help seed the gut microbiome uh, because they're generally not fully metabolized. Uh, they're degraded in the colon and can help shape the gut microbiome. So bacteria feed on these compounds and can generate different colonies of bacteria in the gut, which then uh, because the gut microbiome is evolved during this period, could potentially have long-lasting impact on infant, child, and adult health. These compounds are actually fairly abundant. Um, there's a unique diversity. There's over 100 of these different compounds, so the, the, the profile can be quite variable from women to women, but their total concentration is about the same as protein. So in human milk, uh, looking at the concentration of the major macronutrients in grams per liter, you can see proteins about 12, fats 35, highly abundant in lactose, but the oligosaccharides in total concentration are about the same as the protein. Whereas in cow milk, cow milk does not have these oligosaccharides. So many of these compounds are unique to humans. And we're studying these together with my collaborator, Lars Bode at UC San Diego. 
So we've been looking at this in a cohort of Hispanic mothers, uh, looking at how they change during the course of breastfeeding, how they impact infant obesity development and microbiome development. Uh, and we're now actually moving on to the next phase of the study, looking at these kids who've all been followed from birth to two years of age, bringing them back to now five years of age. We'll be doing uh, follow-up measures. Interestingly, what we've looked at, for example, is how these compounds change in breast milk. And some of our mothers are actually breastfeeding out to two years. Nobody's looked at um, that, that duration of breastfeeding and how breast milk composition changes during that long-term breastfeeding. Now, this is 2-FL, which is, like I said, the most abundant oligosaccharide, and it stays the most abundant throughout two years. It does come down a little bit towards the end, but that wasn't significant. But note also there's two groups of women. There are a group of women who are unable to make 2-FL. Those are called non-secretors it's a, due to a genetic difference. So they do not make any 2-FL, which is kind of interesting, which is the most abundant oligosaccharide. Most of the oligosaccharides follow this kind of pattern over two years, uh, where you can see concentrations are higher and they fall quite rapidly and almost disappear by the 12 months and then remain very low throughout the uh, latter part of breastfeeding. That's just three examples. But we found, uh, interestingly, two that, that caught our attention because they significantly increased over time. One of them is uh, called 3SL. That's just a sialic acid residue tagged on at the three position. And you can see it increases uh, almost two, two fold over the course of breastfeeding by the 24th month. This has caught our attention because sialic acid has been shown to play a role in uh, brain development. And then 3FL, which is like 2FL, except the fucose is tagged onto a different position. It actually increases uh, much more strikingly, almost tenfold increase. There's hardly any of this molecule in breast milk in the first six months of breastfeeding, but quite elevated during the uh, latter part. One of our questions is to look to see whether any of these uh, compounds uh, play a role in protection for obesity development. This is our pilot study showing identifying two compounds uh, in mother's milk that were inversely associated with infant adiposity, higher levels being of this mo molecule in breast milk being associated with lower body fat at six months of age. In our bigger study, we haven't found quite as striking an effect, but we have shown in the first six months of life, and we're still analyzing some of the data to look at the longer term effect. But looking at weight gain in the first six months, we identified one molecule called LNFP2, which had a slight uh, protective effect, higher concentration in breast milk being associated with lower infant weight gain in the first six months of life. We're also interested in how these compounds affect brain development. 2FL, like I mentioned, has been shown to enhance learning, memory, and attention in rodents. It's already used uh, by some formula companies as a supplement, uh, but there's very little human data showing its protective effect. So we've been able to look at this in our study by looking at the relationship between HMOs in the first six months of breastfeeding relative to infant cognitive development at 24 months of age. So at 24 months of age, we bring the babies back. We do a whole battery of tests called the Baileys, where they do different types of cognitive tests, different types of gross and fine motor tests. And from that, we get a cognitive score. 
And looking at all of the oligosaccharide concentrations, adjusting for maternal confounders and so on, we did see, we did verify that 2-FL was the only oligosaccharide that was significantly related to better cognitive performance at two years of age. It's a small effect, but it's significant. And it was only um, evident based on the concentration at one month of age, not six months. We're actually following up on this with more detailed MRI studies. So we can do very comprehensive imaging of a one month old. Uh, we just have to get the baby to sleep uh, in the magnet. We can do that. We can get about an hour worth of, of imaging data from those brains. And we're, we're, this is unpublished data. Uh, but I'll show you some of the data because it's quite exciting. Uh, we're able to look at through different um, parameters, a measure of myelination of the brain and a measure of dendritic branching in the brain. And this shows uh, very strong signals between the amount of 2-FL in the breast milk and signals of, signals of myelination around different areas of the brain. These are different slices of, of, the, of the brain, averaging the data from the 20 infants in different slices. And the imaging collaborators I work with are very excited by this data because they don't see such strong signals. So both myelination here and branching in different regions of the brain are very highly associated with uh, 2-FL concentration. Okay, I'm just going to end very quickly with this talk because I want to leave time for discussion. Very interesting thing that we stumbled upon in our findings. We weren't originally hypothesizing this, but it turns out that a significant number of our mothers are using this formula here because it's provided for them through WIC, which is a federally reported program for nutrition supplementation in low-income women. And so this is this formula was developed for fussy babies because it does not have lactose. So there's this idea that babies have lactose intolerance. So they made a formula without lactose using corn syrup solids instead of the lactose as the main carbohydrate source. So you can see it's very depleted in lactose and it turns out it's very high in glucose. It's very high glycemic formula. And so we looked at how infants consuming this formula as compared to that formula, as compared to breastfeeding, how they were impacted. And what we showed was significant impacts on the gut microbiome. We found these different these differences in gut microbes that were thwarted. They were not developing by six months of age in, in infants consuming the, this formula compared to breastfeeding. There's two groups of breastfeeding breastfeeding at the breast and breastfeeding from a bottle. So we're able to separate out. There's no difference uh, in this particular study, but you can see here, both formula groups actually had reduction in these two bacteria in the gut. And interestingly, they had early development of two of these different bacteria, which were specific, especially this one, in the group uh, receiving the added sugar formula. We've also looked at how these different feeding strategies affect eating behavior, eating behaviors in children over subsequent two years. So this is, this is data from the child, child behavior questionnaire based on enjoyment of eating and food fussiness. And what you can see is that children who got the added sugar formula had a significant reduction and the interaction is highly significant uh, shown here a re significant reduction in enjoyment of eating, whereas other groups were fairly stable. And here, 
an increase in food fussiness, which did increase in the other groups, but it increased significantly more. So the interaction uh, is, is actually highly significant. So a greater increase in food fussiness in those children consuming the added sugar formula in early life. So I'm going to end here. I, I have a whole other talk, Stanley, I can give on uh, sweeteners, but I see it's already quarter to nine. So I'll take questions on that uh, in discussion if you have them. And I'll just end there by acknowledging my collaborators, former and previous and current postdocs and trainees, and all of my staff and the funding people. So thank you so much again for inviting and look forward to discussing with you all.